0: Just as a quick disclaimer, there's some slight adult stuff this week and a little bit of violence. So, check out MythPodcast.com for more info on that. This week, on Myths and Legends, we're wrapping up the current run of King Arthur stories. And you'll learn so much, like how to meet that special someone in medieval times. Spoiler alert, the answers almost always trick them with magic. And we'll also see the kind of sadistic way Merlin leaves a voicemail for King Arthur. The creature this time is a spiky octopus. Or a hungry spiky blanket, regardless It's totally going to ruin your day at the beach. From Bardic, this is Myths and Legends, episode 100B, Family Reunion. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. Previously on Myths and Legends... Yvain found himself banished from King Arthur's court, and Gawain decided to join him. The pair encountered the knight Marhaus, and the trio accepted three individual quests from three women in the country of strange adventure. We followed Gawain's quest, on which he met some knight harassing the noblewoman, Eddard, and became the stranger's wingman. But Gawain disappeared for three days, and when his new knight friend, Pellas, came to his rescue, it turned out he had just been in bed with Edard the whole time. Today, we start not with Gawain, but with his mother, Morgas, on the other side of Great Britain. If you recall, Morgas was the wife of King Lot, the leader who died in rebellion against Arthur, after Arthur and Merlin sunk a ship of babies in order to kill the child that would later grow up into the man that would kill Arthur. Of course, the child, named Mordred, was the sole survivor of the wreck, thanks to an elderly Miller couple that pulled him from the wreckage. Morgoth wept as she held her little boy. Her son, her Mordred, was alive. Her life the past few years had been seeped in tragedy. First, her husband had been killed when he stood up against Arthur. He had been killed like a dog by King Pellinore in front of everyone. She understood why he'd gone, but if he had only known. He had started that round of ill-conceived rebellions because Arthur had killed their son, their youngest child. That little one had been a miracle then, and now, he was a miracle again. Mordred was the only one to survive the wreck, a tragic event where dozens of infants drowned at sea, and what was now called the May Day Massacre. Morgoth had accepted that he had perished with the others, but now, she sobbed and hugged that child, who was nearly 11, and her world was changing, her husband dead, her sons in the court of Arthur. She thought it was her fate to waste away and die in the North, but the Miller couple that had saved the baby had not been idle. They cared for him as their own, but when they learned of the ship and all the children aboard, they traveled around to the brave nobles time and again to see if the lone survivor's parents could be found. When Morgoth looked at him, looked on her Mordred, she knew instantly that he was hers. Her child had returned. Of course, somewhere in her mind, she knew the secret. That Mordred, though born to her, and the reason her husband had fought and died against Arthur and Merlin, was not the son of King Lot. He was the son of Arthur. She had been apart from her husband, staying at Carlan, when the young king and his retinue passed through. It was before she, and everyone, learned that what they thought was some nobody, was actually the son of Uther Pendragon, and the rightful heir to the throne. And it was before she learned that Arthur was her half-brother, that... Sometime over the course of a week, Morgoth had conceived Mordred. She knew knowledge of the affair with Arthur would drive her husband to war and his death. So, after learning the truth about Arthur's lineage, she resolved to never tell anyone. Mordred was the son of Lot, and he always would be. But things were different now. Now, Mordred, Arthur, and her sons were the only family Morgoth had left. It was disgusting and the pair hadn't spoken since those nights in Carleon, but she would tell her brother the truth when the time was right. For now, she was simply happy that her miracle child had come home. Back with our main group of nights, her other son, Gawain, was also getting himself into some confusing trouble in bed. Ooh. Wait, he's alive? Eddard sputtered as she woke up to see Pellis standing over them, sore drawn. going turned pink, fidgeting with the covers. Yeah, he was. Gawain was actually sent here to try and woo her. And all that went according to plan until he started hugging on me and kissing and, you know, here we are. Besides, would it have changed anything had you known he was alive? Eddard thought for a moment. No, probably not. Pellis tried and failed to stifle a sob. The couple's eyes went back to the intruder, but he couldn't take it. He put away his sword and sprinted from the room in the castle, weeping. Well, well that was easy, Gwyn muttered, and then turned to Eddard. Anyway, where were we? Edard looked at him in disbelief. We are not up to anything. You were just leaving. Sure, she had the man beaten daily since he followed her home, and she hated the creep but she was the maiden he was threatening. Gawain was a knight. Wasn't he supposed to uphold a code and not betray a fellow knight the moment a beautiful woman showed him a bit of attention? Under his breath, Gawain muttered something about this whole stop being a disaster. From failing his year-long quest to the fights to all of this. Country of strange adventure, more like the country of tedious adventure. He stood and told Eder to have a nice life. Pellis sat in bed blubbering and drowning his sorrows with the medieval equivalent of several pints of Ben and Jerry's, which was probably like steamed beets or something, when his knights announced that he had a visitor. Nobody really paid Sir Pellis much mind anymore and his knights were busy updating their own resumes, given Pellis announcing that, since Eddard didn't love him, he would be staying in bed until he died. It was when one of his knights was out on the road that he ran into a strange woman. One moment, the robe was empty. He blinked and then instantly, she was there, floating his way. You're a knight of Sir Pellis. You will take me to him, she declared. And it was only later that the man realized that she never actually asked. Pellis was in bed, munching on those steamed beets and weeping when she burst in the door. There wasn't much of a way to appear dignified in that situation, but the strange woman didn't seem to care. She knew Pellis was heartbroken and announced that she could help. Her words flowed with such confidence, such self assurance, and, clothed in all white, Pellis knew instantly who she was. He had heard stories of her since he was a boy. She was the Lady of the Lake. Her smile radiated as the realization swept across the knight's face. She would be happy to make sure he never loved Eddard again, but she could do so much more. Floating closer, she introduced herself. Her name, was Namu. This Lady of the Lake was one of many such characters. In each instance, they're presented as secretive, powerful sorceresses with their own agendas that, yes, live in lakes. Lancelot's adoptive mother was a Lady of the Lake, and the woman who gave Arthur Excalibur was a Lady of the Lake. And Nimue, the one who previously helped Arthur escape death in his fight with Morgan Le Fay's lover, was also a Lady of the Lake. I find them fascinating, but there's frustratingly little information about them. Their names are different all over the place, and they show up to either start or end trouble. This one, however, does stick around for a while. She's the chief lady of the lake, and she's about to take her place in our story. But first, she has to take out the competition. Nimue inched closer to Pellus, and instructed him to relax, and fall into his beak coma. When he awoke, all would be right in his world. He blinked, and Nimue was gone. With a shrug, he dropped off to sleep. Far away, Eddard paced the room, fuming that the men in her life were either really sad sleazeballs or really thoughtless sleazeballs. When she heard a voice behind her, calling to her, she laughed as she turned around, but her chuckle stopped short. Before her stood a lady of the lake. Nemeu shared that none of this was personal. She knew Eddard didn't love pellis and pellis totally deserved that. However, for the future of King Arthur's rule in Great Britain, Nimue needed a seat at the table. She couldn't be some supernatural being coming in from other realms to drop advice on Arthur before leaving again. She had to be someone known by the court, especially with what was going to happen to Merlin soon. She had to become the wife of Pellas, the man who had been next in line to guard the Holy Grail. Nimue sighed. Again, it wasn't personal. Eder took a step back. What wasn't personal? Was Nimue going to kill her? Nimue shook her head. Oh, I wish she said, before both women disappeared. The pair reappeared in Pellus' bedchamber. Already, Nemew's magic had taken effect. When Edard saw Pellus, she threw herself on her knees at the side of his bed, tears in her eyes. She confessed that she couldn't explain it, but she now felt the same way he had felt about her. They could be together at last. Pellus, however, now felt the way that Edard had felt about him. He was repulsed by her. Eddard sobbed uncontrollably, but Pallas couldn't even look at her, and commanded his knights to remove the woman from his sight. Confused, the knights popped their heads into the room. Was that Eddard in his bedroom? Throwing herself at him, but he wanted her to leave? This was way too much to follow. Nimue dismissed them, and they listened. In a flash, she and Eddard were gone, and then Nymue returned alone. Edard slumped hard onto the floor. She had returned to the exact place she was when Nimue had found her mere minutes before, except her life was now crumbling to pieces. She sat rocking on the stone floor, arms wrapped around herself sobbing. She hopelessly loved Pellas, and yet there was no way he would ever want to be with her now. It might have been days, weeks, or even years that Eddard lived in agony. We don't know but after some time, Eddard died of a broken heart. As with anything in Legends, there's another version of the story. In the earlier tellings, Gawain puts his plan into action of convincing Eddard to love another man after sleeping with her for three days straight. In that version, she eventually comes to believe that Despite Pellis' harassment and his complete refusal to respect her wishes at all, he would make a good husband. They should get married. They do, in fact, tie the knot, and subsequently welcome a child into the world nine months later. The version I told is in Thomas Mallory's Le Morte d'Arthur, and is generally considered to be Arthurian canon. The alternate one is from the French Vulgate, the work on which Le Morte d'Arthur is based. And as far as I could tell, Etter getting her completely undeserved supernatural end was just an editorial edition by Sir Thomas Mallory, because I could not find it anywhere else. There's trying to get out of a party, and then there's what Marhas had to do. If you remember, Marhas is the legendary hater of women, and quite possibly the best knight in the world. Well, back in the country of Strange Adventure, he had taken the Eastern Road from the fountain, and quickly found himself in the kingdom of King Pellinor the guy who killed Gawain's father and who was also a knight of the round table. He and all of his subjects were having a massive party to celebrate his coronation, and as Marhaus and his chosen lady rode by, they received multiple verbal invitations to the festivities. There was plenty of cake and juice to go around. Marhaus politely declined, explaining that they were on this whole quest thing with a firm deadline. Not a huge deal, but they couldn't really stop to party with a bunch of strangers. Like a human wave, King Pellinor's men stood and turned to face Marhaus as the music faded, Oh, they weren't asking. This was a mandatory party. All the best parties are mandatory. A few minutes later, and a few of King Pelinor's knights gravely wounded, Sir Marhaus and the lady were galloping away from the fun mandatory party, and heading toward the forest. After camping for the night, Marhaus began to reflect on the pair's time together. It had been a decent couple of weeks fighting random people, rescuing random people, and killing random people, but Marhaus had questions. Namely, was there a point to all this? The 30-year-old maiden assured him that there absolutely was. They were looking at it. Before them stood a massive, polished cross, etched with the following lines. On this block, one may see many of the marvels of the Holy Grail happen. Never will anyone stay here to see any of these marvels who will not be killed, maimed, or wounded. At least until the good Knight comes, who will put an end to all the adventures? Marhaus stroked his beard. Hmm. They should probably stay here. I mean, if something was so marvelous that seeing it alone ended with you being killed, maimed, or wounded, then it had to be good. Except that it wasn't. It was absolutely different. That night, in the light of the moon, a giant stag came to sleep by the cross, called the Stone of the Stag. No relation. The stag had barely shut its eyes when they snapped back open. It glanced in terror to the encircling trees. It was surrounded. From the shadows, Four stark white beagles growled and advanced toward the stag. It wasn't long before they lunged and tore the stag apart. It said that they ate so much of it, but more specifically, that they guzzled so much of the animal's blood that they couldn't walk afterward. So they, too, laid down for a nap of their own. Seconds later, Marhaus and the maiden heard a roar and flapping. Seemingly from nowhere, a full-grown dragon perched on the stone and sprayed the beagles with fire. They would have run, but they were essentially stag blood water balloons at this point, so they could only watch the other beagles get eaten one by one by the dragon. When it was over, the dragon looked on the torn and mangled body of the stag and began licking the remains. It licked for a full 30 or so minutes, and not just because it fancied the taste of quickly decaying stag. No, everywhere it licked, it healed the stag until the creature rose again. Unfortunately for everyone but the stag stuffed pups, the licking made the dragon sick, and he vomited the four dogs out one by one. The pack of dogs and the stags having both returned to the world of the living resumed their previous activities. The stag ran off, and the dogs took up the chase. If you ever felt immediately better after throwing up, then you know how the dragon felt. His job, kind of done, he took the sky, leaving the stag stone as he found it, except covered in blood and vomit and maybe bits of stag. Marhaus and the maiden stood slack-jawed, what was that? Was that a marvel? If that was supposed to be a marvel, I want my money back. I'm not dying or getting wounded or maimed or whatever for that. Even the maiden seemed unsure and admitted that it was definitely different. So the pair decided to go to sleep. It didn't seem worth it to stay up for any more visions. Marhas muttered, his hand instinctively touching his thigh. Yeah, that cross hadn't lied to them. He'd been wounded. Marhas, he heard in a gurgle right beside him. He struggled to roll over and saw the 30-year-old maiden, and she was choking on her own blood. She had been stabbed through the chest, and she was now dying. Marhas had been wounded, but his companion had been killed. She stroked Marhas' face, told him his quest was complete, and said that even though she had been killed under his protection, it was completely her own fault, and he shouldn't feel bad about it. And yes, this was Marhoss' account of her last words. The text says Marhaus shoved her hard again and again, but she didn't move, she was dead. He tried to rise to his feet to look for whoever had attacked them, but he could barely stand. He bound his wounds and waited until the first light of the morning before attempting to rise again. Marhaus fashioned his sled, and loop some ropes around his shoulders in order to drag the woman to the next village. His quest complete, he guessed, the least he could do was bury her. When he told the nuns at the abbey of her death, they carved the entire story in marble above her grave on a giant stone cross. The maiden will be remembered as one of the earliest casualties of the quest for the Holy Grail. Marhaw stayed at the abbey to heal before starting again on the road. Clanking along in full armor, he groaned when a spry, Young Knight rode into his path, just up ahead, shouting that his name was not really relevant to our story, but Marhas had killed his father, prepared to die. Marhas explained that he had killed a lot of people's fathers. The kid should be more specific, but the knight was already charging him at full speed. I'm not sure if it was the wound or fatigue or if he did feel responsible for the death of the maiden, but Marhaus was not on his game. He lowered his head and galloped toward the young knight, to help the man join his father. But he caught the young knight's lance, square in the chest. It slipped past the armor, and by pure luck found a gap in the shoulder. Marhas' horse kept moving, but his body stayed put. The lance, of course, broke, and so Marhaus fell to the ground. He didn't need to feel it. He couldn't move half of his upper body. The lance had gone completely through his shoulder, and he screamed out in pain. So there are things you're supposed to do as a knight in this situation, and then there's what this kid did. He should have jumped down, saw how gravely Marjas was wounded, and offered him a chance to yield. But the kid probably knew of Marhas' reputation, and so he made the less than honorable, though completely understandable choice, of stabbing him from a distance for a bit, while he bled out in the mud, and then did the medieval equivalent of backing over him with his car a few times, while he galloped over Marhas' body with his horse, again and again. Content that his father was avenged, not really wanting to get down in Marhaus's face, the kid high-fived his squire and rode off, leaving the body of Marhaus crumpled in the middle of the road. Marhaus had been conscious while the knight had stabbed him and ran him over, and he had heard and felt his bones shattering, and as he struggled to breathe, his eyes went dark. Elsewhere, Yvain was chipping away at his own quest, helping nuns raise some new decorations in a church. He didn't know how things were going for the other guys, but he was absolutely killing it as a knight-errant. With his new 60-year-old buddy, he was also killing monsters, like the giant, whose head he was helping the nuns raise up in the center of the church, as a festive springtime decoration. The giant had been terrorizing the land, so, of course, Yvain had put an end to it, and having a perfectly good giant head, he donated it to a few kind nuns. Yvain had also bested a lot of other knights. But he wasn't killing them or letting them go. For every knight he beat, he had the man go and present himself to Arthur. It was the medieval equivalent of posting, just how awesome your life is after a breakup. Like, you know, look what you're missing. And Arthur went for it hook, line, and sinker. That's why, after helping the nuns position the giant's head just right, Yvain and his maiden left the church and bumped right into Sir Kay, Arthur's adoptive brother and a companion from Camelot. Yvain said, hello, what were they doing here? Kay shared that it wasn't easy for Arthur to admit this, but, but he had been all torn up since Yvain left. He was an idiot for letting a man like Yvain go. He, he wanted Yvain back. Yvain pursed his lips and looked at the sky. Maybe he didn't want to come back. Maybe he liked his life now. I mean, he was beating up knights, hanging out with a senior citizen BFF, and helping nuns decorate churches with severed giant parts. He discovered so much about himself and things were just going really well for him. Kay looked into Yvain's eyes and explained that his brother was so, so sorry. If Yvain came back, it was for good. He could have a seat at the round table. Yvain gasped. Arthur had cleared out a seat for him? Kay was quick to clarify that, well, the violence of the middle ages cleared out a seat, but yes. Tearfully, Yvain nodded. He would return to Camelot. Kay smiled. Yvain had just made Arthur the happiest king in all of Great Britain. Remembering his long-term plans, Yvain mentioned that he did have to meet up with his knight friends, but he'd start out immediately after that for Camelot. After that, they parted ways, and the giddy knight and his elderly friend began the ride south. But as they rode, something caught Yvain's eye. He looked just off the road and abruptly left his horse. Within minutes, they were standing before a large stone cross, called the Stone of the Stag, Yvain leaned forward, to speed read through the description, before standing upright. Hands firmly planted on his hips. Huh, that sounded interesting. They should definitely stay the night. We'll get back to more nights making more shockingly poor decisions. But that will be right after this. Three days later, Marhaus blinked awake. Was he alive? He was in so much pain as the room came into focus. Was that? Was that a giant's head hanging from the church's ceiling? Gawain looked on his once and future best friend and smiled. The nuns had said he was alive, but Gawain had waited to believe it until he saw Marhaus's eyes open. It was by sheer luck that Gawain had been speeding by with two knights he'd beaten. When he found Marhas face down in the mud, they had built him a makeshift stretcher and dragged him to town. And when the people at the Abbey had cleaned him up, Gawain could see that, through the bruising and swelling, it was Marhaus. Gawain had had a pretty uneventful couple of days after leaving Eddard, he'd Chased down the dwarf in the big night and found that what he thought was them giving the 15 year old fun shield rides was actually them just dragging her behind a horse to torture her. Gwyn killed both of them and scared their men off, rescued the girl, and then subsequently abandoned her. He asked if he could pick up the quest again, and she said no. Gwyn ended up staying with Marhaus for two months while the knight recovered from his injuries, and then the pair left together. They were mildly annoyed, being the first and second best knights in the world that they had to keep hearing from everyone just how awesome Yvain was. Why was he so great anyhow? The pair had been riding and discussing it all morning, and by now it was well into the afternoon. They both agreed they could use a rest, and how convenient. There was a cozy tent just up ahead, in an open field. So there are a lot of digressions in the story. And so what happens next is funny, but not related to anything at all. As Gwaine and Marhaus approach the tent, they start noticing that it's not really spring weather anymore. It's getting hot, like my armor is hot to the touch hot. Fortunately, this tent is empty, save for two beds. And as any of us would do in this situation, these guys take off all their armor and most of their clothes and relax into the beds of two complete strangers. Unfortunately, the beds do belong to someone. And so the guys blink, and suddenly, there's someone standing before them. She's an elderly woman. Gawain estimates that she's in the triple digits age-wise and she saunters over to him. Seeing as how he's a guest in her tent, she wants something from him. In fact, she wants him. Gawain looks at her in disbelief. (laughs) Oh, no, 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 no. No, thank you. Hard pass. She looks over to Marhaus, also reclining on a bed, an intense heat, and he too shakes his head. (sighs) Yeah, no, harder pass. The pair of knights stumble from the beds and begin piecemealing their armor back on, while the elderly woman objects. What was even the point of putting comfortable beds out in the open and enchanting a field to get guys to take their clothes off if no one would sleep with her? They'd see. They'd be sorry. The guys barrel out of the tent, shout a quick, No, we won't! over their shoulders before remounting their horses and galloping away. They don't realize, of course, that they've been cursed. So as they leave the enchanted field and begin to cool down, recognition of each other begins to fade. And soon... Gawain and Marhaus each begin to think that there's an annoying stranger riding too close to them, matching them stride for stride. They grow angrier and angrier, until Marhaus turns to Gawain, and barks that if this serf doesn't leave him alone, he'll pay with his blood. Gawain, not recognizing his old friend anymore, immediately lowers his shield, and prepares to fight. It's only by the intervention of another lady of the lake, that the pair don't nearly kill each other. Again, their savior explains that this whole thing has just been a distraction and they should really get back on track. Though, I mean, with this story, who really knows what any of that means at this point? Personally, I have no idea what their quest actually is anymore. The Lady of the Lake tends to their many wounds, and lets them go with a stern request, that they don't get into any more trouble with dangerous magical women. Exactly 12 hours later, Goyne and Marhas found themselves getting into even more trouble with dangerous magical women. The pair stood looking at a rock the size of a skyscraper, listening to sweet sing trickling from its peak. If they backed up very, very, very far, they could see a woman at the top, probably a dozen or so just sitting on the edge and looking out into the wilderness. The men didn't realize it, but as soon as they saw the women, the women saw them, and the women began speaking not to them, but about them. First, they spoke of Gawain, saying that a foreign knight, a man that he would love like a brother, would be the one to kill him. After Gawain fell, so too would Camelot and the round table, destroyed by the king's own son. People would arrive from across the sea, conquerors the king once held at bay, and they would devour all the land. And so Arthur's kingdom would pass from the earth. They turned to Marhaus, telling him that his death was bad and that he should feel bad. His life went end in a quarrel with another knight who was way better looking than him after Marhaus tried to obtain something to which he had no right. As the woman spoke, the men stood entranced, but not by the really, really important prophecies that were being revealed to them, but by the maiden's beauty. By the time the woman stopped speaking, it was finished. The knights were bewitched. They begged the woman to bring them up to the top of the Rock of Maidens, as it was called, so as to stay with them forever. And instantly, the knights were transported up the giant rock. There, Gawain and Marhaus realized that the giant rock was more than that. The top was flat and grassy, and a stone house of many rooms sat in the center. The women, as it turned out, and should surprise absolutely no one, were all former students of Merlin. They were also kind of really dangerous and mad at Merlin. For some reason, the aged wizard never wanted to get into. It was years ago, but he had managed to imprison them at the top of the rock. They couldn't get down, but they could bring people up to them, summon food, floods, and storms, and tell everyone passing by how they were going to die. Seems like, Kind of a lot of oversights on Merlin's part, but whatever. Still, Gawain looked at the beautiful maiden in front of him, and Marhaus to the woman in front of him, and yes, they found love. There, surrounded by magnificent food and drink, the pair found the happiness they sought. They couldn't leave, but it didn't matter. They didn't want to leave. This was a greater joy than any they had ever known. Gawain and Marhaus were finally happy. They were complete so they thought. They weren't, as they thought, surrounded by beautiful women, food, and drinks, but deluded into thinking they were. In reality, they were in a twilight sleep in the cellar of the maiden's home, trapped in a dream, prisoners of their own happiness. Meanwhile, after over a year of wandering Great Britain, Yvain was going home, Unfortunately, he was going home alone. He too, had lost his 60-year-old maiden, the same way that Marhas had lost his. She had been stabbed at the stag stone, but unlike Marjas’s maiden, allegedly said, Yvain spent her last words telling him that it was absolutely his fault. She would never forgive him, and that her blood was on his hands forever. It was therefore with much anxiety that he returned to the fountain, one year to the day that he had parted from Gawain and Marhas. But his friends and their maidens were nowhere to be found. Only a strange woman, with something to say. It was yet another Lady of the Lake. And she told Yvain, that Gawain and Marhaus had been taken captive, by the maidens, of the Rock of Maidens. They would stay there until they died of old age. And even if they were freed 50 years from now, they wouldn't realize one day had passed. The Lady of the Lake sighed, admitting that the magic of the maidens of the Rock of Maidens was beyond her. It needed to be solved by the man who put them there. They, needed Merlin. Yvain rode into Camelot, and after much hugging and kissing and many let's never fight agains, between he and Arthur, he told the king of Gawain and Marhaus, the maidens of the Rock of Maidens, and their need for Merlin. Arthur grimaced. Merlin kind of came and went as he pleased. He always did. The last time he left, he said something about catching up with an old girlfriend, or stalking her, or something across the channel. They had no way of getting a message to him, and no idea what they should Yes, why are you in here? Arthur barked at the stinking, half-naked man standing in his court. Hi, yes, I'm the madman that's lived down in the swamp since the days when your father ruled. This is kind of a weird story, but for 30 years, a message for you has been seared in my mind with a pounding insistence for this very moment. Merlin can't be here, he's following his heart, slash stalking an ex-girlfriend, but I am, the madman said, and for 30 years, this message has been pulsing through my mind you have to knight Gahariot and add him to the round table. Gahariot? Gawain's younger brother? Arthur replied. Why? Look, I don't know, the madman said. I only know two things for certain. One, you need to knight Gahariot before his older brother, Agravain. And two, your wizard buddy's a psychopath who will burn a message on a man's mind without his consent and drive him mad for 30 years instead of, you know, leaving a note. Arthur sat back. Huh. So... Instead of not earning the woman's anchor in the first place, or failing that, instead of locking them up in a place where they can't hurt anyone, Merlin saw all this happening, but still put them on a rock in the middle of my kingdom, where they can snatch up any knight that passes. It made the only solution a quest within a quest within a quest, and basically ruined this man's life to deliver a solution? The madman sighed. He announced that Merlin had told him to say yes to that question. He also said that that shouldn't surprise Arthur at all. That's classic Merlin. Arthur laughed. Yeah, pretty much. So Arthur followed Merlin's advice, delivered with a 30-year delay by a man likely driven mad by said advice. He knighted Gahariot, and then knighted his older brother, Agravain. Given Merlin's prophecy, Gahariot rode off with much fanfare and cheering. He was going to save his brother, Gawain, and redeem their family name. Agravain watched his brother go and sat sullen on his horse. His send-off had no cheers or fanfare. In fact, no one noticed him leave at another gate and make his way to his brother's horse. They weren't two hours outside Camelot when Geharriot, brother of Gawain, heard galloping. He turned his horse around just in time to register a knight, charging him at full speed. Geharriot scrambled to ready himself, but barely survived the impact. In fact, before falling from his horse, Geharriot caught the colors of the opponent's armor. It was agraphane his own brother. Determined, Agravaine jumped from his horse and unsheathed the sword. Geharriot had shamed him for the last time. It was inconceivable that he had been knighted before his older brother. Geharriot had to answer for that which he had completely no control over. And he must die. Hello, sorry. Couldn't help overhearing. The pair heard a voice off to the side. It was yet another knight who had dismounted his horse and was now walking over to them, unarmed. He, too, was a knight-errant. And he didn't mean to interrupt, but their conversation was so loud. So, they were brothers? Fighting to the death was so final. Anyway, he didn't mean to intervene. He just wanted to provide some perspective before the slaughter. He knew that if he had a brother, he wouldn't treat him like that. But what did he know? He just had 12 sisters. Both brothers stopped in their tracks. You have 12 sisters, Cahariot sputtered. Yeah, And I don't ever get to see them, the knight said. They're super powerful enchantresses that some jerk wizard put on top of a stone in the middle of nowhere. The third knight replied with a wave of his hand. Harriet and Agravain looked at each other and then to the unarmed knight. You don't say. Gawain's brother slammed the knight down into the dirt before the Rock of Maidens. The man had just spent three days tied to the underside of Agravain's horse, so he had definitely been in better shape, but he was still alive. Gahariot unsheathed the sword and held it to the man's throat. Craning his neck, Gahariot demanded the woman hand over his brother and his brother's sexist friend, or else Gahariot would be able to tell the woman exactly how their own brother was going to die. It was going to be right now. The sisters screamed in unison, except for the eldest, who sneered. She could see the future, and knew Gahariot meant business. Deal. Instantly, Gwyn and Marhaus appeared, both sleeping in her brother's tent. Not a three-day ride from the foot of the stone, Gahariet released the knight, who lay shaking on the ground, told the woman he appreciated their help, and that they could thank Merlin for the solution. After making a three-day ride in just two, Gahariot and Agravain finally found their oldest brother and his friend. Of course, the men were confused. The last thing they remembered were these Really good looking women. And then, bam, they woke up here. They really had to go to the bathroom, too. And hey, why did they have beards now? It was just before Pentecost when the five knights entered Camelot. That week, both Yvain and Marhaus were added to the round table. And Arthur cautioned Yvain that the day might come when he had to stand against his mother, Morgan Le Fay, and against his family or friends for the round table. Yvain nodded. He understood. His only loyalty from here on out would be to Arthur and his round table. Merlin strode in just after the ceremony. They got his message, right? With the guy that he had maybe inadvertently driven mad? That afternoon, he pulled Arthur aside. There was something he had to tell the king. There was a tournament to celebrate Pentecost and Gawain, always a favorite, actually came in second. The knight who beat him had him on the ground, and he spared his life at the request of his wife. Gawain looked up and saw Pellus glaring down at him. Nemew, the lady of the lake, was off introducing herself to Arthur. Agravain and Geharriot, the brothers of Gawain, had been reconciled, and Geharriot was giddy with excitement. He was a member of the round table, he wasn't just a knight of King Arthur's court, he was part of the greatest group of warriors in the western world, if only his father had been here to see it. Then it hit him. He was a knight now. He could go questing like his brothers. He could return to the north and see his mother and show her what he had become. He had been gone too long too. He said goodbye to everyone and left that very evening. Later that week was the feast of Pentecost. No one else would know it for a few more months, but Merlin had just left Camelot for the last time and Arthur wasn't taking the news well. He had a bit too much to drink for so early in the day and he ended up falling asleep in his chair at the party. That's why he missed the first part of the story. Calogranot, one of Yvain's many cousins, had ridden from across the island to celebrate Yvain's return. The knights got to bragging about their deeds and their prowess and Calogranot, apparently misunderstanding the word bragging, decided to overshare about a time that he was greatly shamed. The court listened with rapt attention to the story of a monstrous peasant, a magical fountain that produced storms, and a knight in black that shamed Clogrenot. Sometime during the story, Arthur woke up and he heard of the strange fountain and dangerous knight harassing people in his land. He decreed that in two weeks' time, Arthur, with all of his available knights, would ride out and pay this guy a visit. Maybe it was the wine or maybe Yvain wasn't gonna let someone like Kay take his glory. Who knows? Either way, Yvain was glad his friends were safe, but Harriet, the praised young knight, had walked the ball across the goal line after all of Yvain's hard work. No, Calogranot was his cousin and he wasn't gonna let someone like Kay or Gawain take his adventure. This would be his story. He slipped from the feast, sobered up, and set out into the night. By now, Gahariot was shaking with rage, and standing over his mother, Morgas, He was still in full armor, having been so excited to see her that he hadn't taken it off. It was early when he rushed into her bedroom, and he found her with him. She was holding some nobody in bed, some guy barely older than Gahariot, some knight who forgot his place. Then it said that Gehariot looked on his beautiful naked mother, which, ew, and didn't blame the knight. What was he to say, when a queen asked that of him? But his mother knew better. Cahariot's father had been a king, and it had been difficult enough as the third son of a traitor, to rise in Arthur's kingdom. But still, Cahariot had done it. He had finally achieved the highest honor in the land, and he had come home to this? Nothing remained secret. Harriet's mother's relationship with some nobody would be discovered, and despite all he had done, Cahariot would be shamed again. He couldn't have known that Morgas, for the first time since she lost her infant son, and then her husband in less than a year, was happy. When Mordred returned, she had found new life, and she had found love. For the first time in years, she had peace. Sure, it was with some nobody knight, and she might shame her family name if anyone ever found out, but she didn't care. A man didn't need to deal with any of that. And if kings could love anyone they wanted, then you know what? She, a queen, could too. Harriet, however, did not see it that way. He only saw the hit to his own reputation, and there wasn't any thought in his mind other than rage when he raised his sword above his head. more had heard the rustling of his armor, and snapped awake. Horror washing over her, at the sight of a fully armored knight, towering above her head. Cahariot had received new armor, as a member of the round table, and so she didn't recognize her son. He stared coldly into his mother's eyes, and thrust his sword downward. He continued, unwavering, until she stopped moving. He gave the knight a chance to flee, though. Not before warning that when, he saw the knight again, that would be the day the man died. Naked and covered in blood, the knight fled out a secret side exit in the room. Caharriot wiped his blade, put it away, and shut the thick oak door to his mother's room. It would be hours before she was discovered. Caharriot requested a new horse from the surprised stable workers and left before the morning rays broke the horizon. More lay motionless in bed. She couldn't move. She couldn't cry out she knew she was dying. Her final thoughts were that of her children, of Mordred in particular, the boy she had just begun to know. And now, she was taken from him. She had told Mordred the truth about his father the other day, that it was Arthur. The boy hadn't taken it well. He had been angry at the news. He had cursed his mother and father. He said that he would be seen as an abomination if anyone ever found out. She saw how he burned with hate for Arthur, but she let him work through it on his own. She had decided that he would talk to her when he was ready, and then they would work through it together. They had all the time in the world then. But now, as the last life faded from Morgoth's eyes, she saw how wrong she was. All she could do now was pray that her son would find his way and that his anger toward his father wouldn't overwhelm him and define him. cannot begin to understand why Geharriot murdered his mother. If you're looking for some medieval subtext, look no further than having both a man and a woman commit a morally dubious act, and then it being unchivalrous to kill the man right away because he's unarmed, and that would be dishonorable, but have it be just fine to kill a woman because, as a noblewoman, she should know better than to act like that. That being said, it is not fine. Gawain and the others, even King Arthur, will all mourn and rage at the news of Morgoth's death and they'll have to hunt down one of their own to bring about justice. That won't be for a little while, though. Next week, it's an anti-fairy tale that was collected by Hans Christian Andersen, and a story from Vietnamese folklore about a family with money problems, and a fly who gives some unexpected legal help. I want to thank everyone who's reached out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, email, and through the reviews. We love hearing how the podcasts are bringing people together in ways we never imagined. So, if you've shared the show with a family member or friend, thanks. And special thanks to Kendall and Chandler for listening today. And yes, Chandler, we're talking to you. Well, actually, Kendall is. Chandler Tenna Brown, I must be descended from the wily Loki to have somehow tricked you into being mine. Your kindness, courage, and zeal for life inspire me each and every day. In the two years since we met, our life together has brimmed with adventure and funky dance moves. I hope that the decades to come are just as full of sunrise Irish coffees, sunset s'mores, and midnight wing runs in our PJs. In times of feast and famine, happiness and sorrow, health and illness, I want to be at your side. Perhaps gray-haired, most likely battle-scarred, but still stubborn and still your lass. It is my deepest, dearest wish that you will do me the honor of becoming my husband. Marry me, Chen-kun. Find out next week if he says yes, or follow along on social media. We can't wait. The creature this week is the cuero from South America. The cuero is kind of like an octopus. It has eight tentacles, but the very worst type of tentacles. They are either lined with teeth and claws, or they have clawed hands at the end of each of those tentacles. On its enormous head are massive ears covered in eyes, which is just a smart use of head real estate. Two senses in one. It's probably an octopus with a leathery cowhide-like head. But according to the stories, it could also be just like a folded hungry cowhide that sneaks up on people when they're napping on the beach. One way to kill it is to toss a cactus or a thorny branch into the water and hope that it takes the bait. It'll wrap it up and that'll be it for the cuero. It's said that when this octopus thing seduces a cow, that cow gives birth to an offspring so ugly that they instill fear. That's probably true, but I feel like seduce is the wrong word, for whatever happens between a monster octopus and a cow, just minding its own business by a lake. Sometimes the monster octopus just wants to relax, so it will drag itself out of the lake to sun itself on the beach. If it gets stuck, either by tides or it just gets sleepy and doesn't feel like moving, the cuero will just summon a storm to flood the area, and wash it back to the water, which is really the only way to travel. So yeah, if you see a nice little cowhide towel someone left on the beach, check for teeth before you lay down. And if you decide to leave it alone, maybe just call it a day at the beach. Because that little towels commute home is gonna get pretty stormy. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band, Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. And today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and produced by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.